0: Good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, part of our teaching team and uh, this is the second week of our study of the book of Acts so if you weren't here last week uh, you haven't missed too much. Uh, We'll go most of the year actually through this and uh, you can always catch up on our sermons online uh, through our podcast and other stuff that we have there online. Before we get into this though I want to take a moment and uh, pray uh, specifically related to um, Martin Luther King Day being tomorrow, and uh, that's a significant day in the life of our country. Um, and kind of to our shame, really, as Arizonans, uh, one of the last states to recognize Martin Luther King Day was Arizona. So uh, hopefully uh, tomorrow, um, as you kind of, maybe some of you will have off work, I hope so, but I, I, I hope that you'll continue this prayer that God would begin to unite us in a greater way as a country um, and so let's pray for that. Uh, Father, thank you um, for Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Lord, thank you for his courage. Thank you for his toughness. Uh, thank you for his willingness to suffer and even die for a cause that was important and that he believed in. And um, Lord, thank you for the, the progress that has happened in our country uh, related to race relations. But God, it's still so, so far to go. And uh, there still remains so much misunderstanding and Uh, so much injustice and so much uh, hurt and pain. And so, God, we pray that you would uh, bring your spirit to heal some of those long, long long-held wounds. Uh, God, I pray that you would bring greater reconciliation and unity. Uh, Lord, as we'll see here in the book of Acts over the course of this year, that will happen to the degree that your spirit is poured out on people. And so we pray that, that you would do that, and we pray that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, One other thing before we jump in is that uh, our students, 6th through 12th grade, are at winter camp, and uh, apparently that's going great because I texted Josh Watt, our student pastor yesterday. I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, it's going great. So that was the update I got from camp. Some of you have been like, hey, how's it going at camp? It's great. So uh, that's all I have. Uh, So I assume they're doing well. And uh, they'll be back tomorrow, but you can be praying for those students. Pray that uh, the Spirit of God would move uh, in the midst of those young people and pray for those uh, mentors and staff as well. All right, well, we're in week two, as I said, of our study of the book of Acts. We're going to finish chapter one here today. And I got to tell you, this was kind of a tough message to prepare. Uh, Some messages are tough to prepare because it's hard to figure out what is the Bible saying here. And uh, if you've ever read the Bible and felt like, gosh, I don't get it, then you're with me, right? If you've never thought that, you've never read the Bible. So um, there's times where you just don't get it and it's hard to figure out. But, But that wasn't why this one was tough. This one was tough because the main point of it and especially the main application of it is something that I feel like if you're a Christian, if you've been around church, you've heard so many times that there's gonna be kind of a temptation to yawn at it. And so I'm preparing this thing, okay, gosh, how do I help something that's so ordinary and so plain and so straightforward that everyone's heard, and I realize not everyone, some of you, you know, this is your first time to church, but, but a lot of you have heard over and over and over, how, how do we kind of make that sizzle a little bit, right? And the temptation I had was to kind of go into some of the more like interesting kind of uh, I wonder how this worked, kind of things like like there's that whole parentheses in verse verse 18 and 19 about Judas, right? Judas had betrayed Jesus and then abandoned Jesus, and uh, we read in Matthew that he was in despair and so he hung himself. Here it says that he, uh, you know, he fell headlong and burst open his bowels, gushed out, right? That'd be a great junior high message, right? The junior hires would love that. Right? And, and so that could be really fascinating to do kind of a case study on Judas and betraying Jesus. And we could do that. But, but that's not really the main point of this text. Right? I was also kind of flirting with the idea, maybe we could talk some about these guys at the end. At the end of the passage, they're trying to replace Judas. And, and they say, okay, we got to have an apostle to replace him with. And, and they put forward uh, Joseph also had these other names. I don't know if he's like a CIA agent or what, but Joseph, Barcep, you know, he had these multiple names. So Joseph and Matthias, right? And I think it's just so interesting. They were both equally qualified, but they rolled the dice, they cast the lots, and it fell to Matthias. And so Joseph, sorry, buddy, you lose. And I thought, man, be interesting to talk about what do you do when you're overlooked? What do you do when you're just as qualified? And God says, no, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? So go think about that this week, but that's not the point of this passage. (laughs) See, here's the thing. I I don't feel the freedom to just kind of go on speculative journeys about little things that might be interesting in a text. I feel like I have to tell and, and proclaim what is the Bible saying. Like that's the burden I have. I hope that as you gather in your RCs and stuff like that, I hope you'll do that too. I mean, rabbit trails can be fun, but don't miss the main thing. And the reality is the main thing in this passage is that the church, in preparing for the Spirit, gathered together and prayed and reflected on the Bible. <sighs> that's, that's it? All right, got it. Right? And so many of you that have been around church are like, yep, got it. But do we get it? Do we get it? See, see I wonder if actually... We struggle because some of the blocking and tackling, the basics, the fundamentals, the ABCs of how to walk with Jesus haven't really sunk into us. And so maybe we need this more than we think. I've been to a lot of different uh, church conferences and have heard a lot of different messages that have talked about how we want to be like an Acts 2 church. I remember uh, hearing some messages from Willow Creek Community. They've been a really influential church in the country. And they had a whole conference where everyone gave a different kind of message on how to be an Acts 2 church. And I appreciate that. Um, And and I think that's incredible. Um, And I I went to a church in high school in Denver called Colorado Community Church. And at Colorado Community, the the, the pastor there talked about how we want to be a 21st century church with a first century power. And I went, oh, yeah, I like that. And what he's talking about is Acts 2. Because right, in Acts 2, this is what we're going to look at next week, in Acts 2, God pours out the Spirit on people, and when that happens, they, in that particular situation, are enabled to speak languages that they had never heard before, that they didn't know, they'd never been trained in, and other people from around the world who were there in Jerusalem heard it in their own languages, they proclaim the mighty works of God. And then in Acts 2, the apostle Peter gets up. And this is amazing, because when you think about the the two biggest failures leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus were Judas, he's dead, and Peter, he's now leading this thing. And Peter gets up, and the summary of his sermon is, you killed Jesus, God raised him, say you're sorry. And 3,000 people say, okay, we're sorry. (laughs) And thousands of people are added to the church, right? So when people say, we want to be an Acts 2 church or we want to be a 21st century church with a first century power, they're talking about Acts 2, right? And and don't you think, if you're a follower of Christ, don't you want to have a powerful experience of God? Don't you want that? Don't you want to be part of something that the surrounding world goes, whoa, I've got to take notice. What is that? What are you guys doing? What, what, what's happening with this Jesus thing? Don't you want to be part of that? Don't you want to be part of something where thousands of people in a day surrender their lives to Jesus Christ? Don't you? You can talk back to me. Yeah, yeah. I hope you do. If you don't, we should just stop. We're, just, okay, we're done, church forever is over, because that's what we want, right? That's Acts 2 church. But here's the thing, you don't get to be an Acts 2 church unless you're an Acts 1 church first. And you don't get to be an Acts 2 Christian unless you're an Acts 1 Christian first. And it's all the ordinary stuff that we're going to see in this passage that actually paves the way to the extraordinary. So here's kind of the big idea today. The extraordinary experiences of God, the road to that, the road to extraordinary experiences of God is paved with ordinary obedience to God. The road to extraordinary experiences of God is paved with ordinary obedience to God. So what I want to invite us and challenge us and call us to be today is an Acts 1 church. Because I think that if we commit ourselves to the Acts 1 stuff, then when God does the Acts 2 stuff, it'll blow our minds. Well, what's the Acts 1 stuff? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment, but before we do, let's just review what we've looked at. The book of Acts here is written by Luke Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote Acts, Acts is the sequel, it's the part two. Uh, Luke was a close associate with the Apostle Paul and had done lots of investigative research to make sure the things he was writing were true. And in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus told the disciples, hey, I know you have a mission, but you've got to wait for something. He said, "Uh, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. And then in verse 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, I've got a mission for you, but you got to wait for the power. Now, they probably would have had a hard time waiting. Anyone else have a hard time waiting? Like for your soup to cook in the microwave or like for anything, right? Like one of the things that was so funny on Christmas this year, our little two-year-old Mary By 10 a.m., she was just absolutely trashed. Because she had used all her energy trying to wait her turn to open presents, right? In a family our size, it takes a while to take our turns, right? And she was just gassed because it's hard to wait. And they had to wait. Jesus said, Hey, I want you to wait. And there's probably some of them that would have thought, Why do we gotta wait? Like, okay, we've spent three years with Jesus. We've seen all the miracles, we've heard all the teaching. You know, we kind of faltered there around the time he got crucified, but then we saw him rise from the dead. And if we saw him rise from the dead, let's get out there. Let's go. Right? And and, and there is a couple things just to pause here, kind of a parenthesis. There's a few things in this passage that that we got to just point out about the resurrection. These guys had seen Jesus rise from the dead. That's not just a kind of made-up story. This is a historical fact. This is the game-changer. This is the thing that changes the direction of history, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And some of the evidence of that is actually when they go to to pick the, the replacement apostles, their criteria is this person would have had to have been with us from the time of John the Baptist to the time Jesus was ascended, and they have to have seen the resurrected Jesus. They have to be a witness of the resurrection. And they have multiple people to choose from, which means multiple people saw Jesus resurrected. Sometimes people will say, ah, well, that resurrection thing, you know, the disciples, they had been through so much trauma, they had been through so much difficulty because of the suffering of Jesus, and it didn't go the way they planned, that they were kind of in, in shock, and they were hallucinating that Jesus returned, but he didn't really return. But here's the thing. People don't have group hallucinations. Even people that get together as a group to try to have hallucinations don't have the same one. They all have different ones. And so multiple people saw the resurrected Jesus. I think that's incredible evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. But you know what's even more amazing is what we see in, uh, let's see, it's verses verse 14. It says they were together with one accord, devoted themselves to prayer together with the women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers moms, you love your kids, don't you? And there's times you just sort of watch your kid and you go, wow, he's such an angel. Right? And if you're a grandma, like, oh, it's even like times 10, right? Like, and, and you'd go, oh, they're, they're perfect. But you don't really think that, right? <laughs> like you wouldn't go, my little grandson, my son, he is sinless, he's the son of God. No, you wouldn't do that. But Mary did, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, is one of the people here praying to Jesus. She's like, I potty trained him, but I pray to him. I mean, like, this is remarkable, right? She's saying, I knew him when he was two, and yeah, he's sinless. And then more amazing is that his brothers are there, right? Any of you have a brother? Do you think your brother is sinless? He's the son of God? What would it take for you to think your brother was the son of God? He'd have to rise from the dead, like that'd be the only option, right? And so there are these things in this thing that say, hey, the resurrection has happened, and you'd think, well, maybe that's enough. Maybe just knowing that is enough. We can head out, and yet they still wait. Why do they wait? Here's why they wait. Because the road to extraordinary experiences of God is paved with ordinary obedience to God. And Jesus had said, wait, wait, you need power. So what do they do while they wait? What does this obedience look like while they wait? Well, first, it looks like gathering together. Verse 13 describes them going into this upper room, describes all the apostles, all these uh, people who've been following Jesus. It says in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Uh, Peter's standing up, verse 15, among this company of people. They're gathering together. They're spending time together. That's the first way they, they wait. That's the first way they obey, is they just gather. They just spend time together. You know, as followers of Christ, we're called to gather together. That's part of how we obey the Lord. We, we're not just these individual kind of rogue Christians. We're a community. As Matthew said earlier, we're a body. And we're called to be together. And there's great blessing, ordinary blessing through this. I love this quote by Christina Cleveland. She says this. She says, there's something powerful about being together together. A lot of it is laughing and knowing that we're not alone. I think sometimes we sort of over-spiritualize community and relationships. You know what a lot of it's about? You're just together, and you're laughing, and you're enjoying each other, and you're having meaningful friendship, and you know somebody else cares. Do you know how rare that is in our culture even? Like we just are this constant crowded loneliness people everywhere and we're all alone and the church is called to gather called to be together second thing they do is they pray look at verse 14 it says all these with one accord right they're they're all together there's this unity there's this sense in which they're all on the same page we're devoting themselves to prayer they were devoting themselves to prayer. That, that word devoting in the Greek tense of it essentially means they continued to devote themselves to prayer. This wasn't like one time they got together and man, the prayer was really hot. It was really intense. It was like, no, they kept doing this. Their regular pattern was to gather together. A regular pattern was to pray. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts. We're gonna see this theme a lot throughout this book. It's mentioned in 20 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Now, when I was taught to pray as a a freshman in college, the guy who was discipling me described prayer, he described relating to God as spiritual breathing, right? You inhale the scriptures, you exhale prayer. You inhale God speaking to you, you exhale speaking to God. It's spiritual breathing. Now, here's the thing. I've never heard somebody say, ugh, Breathing is so boring. I think I've had enough. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm done breathing. It's too boring. No one says that because why? Because you can't live without breathing. Do you know what is a follower of Jesus? You can't live without prayer. You can't live without the intake of Scripture and the exhaling of prayer, of talking to the Lord, and it doesn't have to be complex. Right? It can be as simple. I, I saw a book, and I don't think it was a Christian book, but I saw, saw the title, and I thought, that's a great title for how to pray. It was, here, here's how you pray. Wow, thanks, help. There you go. Wow, God, you're amazing. Thanks, God, you've given me more than I could ever imagine. Help, God, here's where I need you. That's just spiritual breathing. And we get tired of that. We go, oh, I'm bored of that. Oh, that's not very sexy. It's not very exciting. I, I want to see, see Acts 2. Well, you need Acts 1, devoted to prayer. And notice that they're doing it in, in community. They're doing it together with one accord, it says right they're they're united which means one of the best ways to learn prayer one of the best ways to enjoy prayer is to do it in community one of the reasons maybe it's hard to do one of the reasons maybe you feel like i don't know what i'm doing maybe one of the reasons you feel like i just get stuck is because you're always doing it alone The, the the best times of prayer for me have been with people and by myself in a in a time when i'm on a regular basis also praying with people Because it's praying with one another that I go, oh, yes, this is important. Oh, wow, what a great insight they just prayed. Oh, I want to see the Lord that way. And you just start to enjoy it more because you're doing it together. This is the kind of prayer that happens in our RCs, in our small groups, in our communities. It doesn't usually happen this same way as, as we gather here on Sundays, but it happens in homes and it happens in smaller settings. And, man, we need it. I love this quote by Mary, Queen of Scots had a real adversarial relationship with John Knox, who was a church leader, she said this, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Whoa. I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. That's remarkable. Who is afraid of Redemption Gateways prayers. Anyone? What I love about this is that we think in order to really do something, in order to really change something, we gotta get organized, we gotta get assembled, we gotta have a movement, we gotta have a vision, we gotta have a structure, we gotta have a purpose statement, we gotta, we gotta ha- and we gotta have everyone in the church, they all gotta do it. Y- you know what we need? <laughs> Acts 1. need to pray. Prayer is a remarkably effective strategy. That's how they waited. So they gathered together, they prayed, and then they reflected on and they obeyed scripture. I'm not going to read because Seth read it just a moment ago. I'm I'm not going to read all of verses 15 to 26, but what's happening there is after and while they're praying, Peter gets up, and he's clearly been reflecting on the Scriptures. He's been thinking about Judas and going, okay, how did that happen? And so he looks up a number of the Psalms that talk about kind of the enemies of God and goes, okay, maybe there's some connections there. He's, he's thinking about his life and their situation in light of Scripture. And he quotes, in verse 20, he quotes Psalm 69, he quotes Psalm 109. He's reflecting, he's thinking, he's going, how do we make sense of this situation with Judas? And what do we do, need to do in light of it? And when he comes to the conclusion, based on Psalm 109 is that they need to replace Judas. They need to find a, a new 12th apostle. Here's what's fascinating about this. 12 apostles has no strategic value compared to 11 or 13. Why 12? Right? Like you'd think, maybe they'd go, well, you know what, guys, that 12th thing might be cursed. Let's just stick with eleven. Or maybe they go, you know what? We got Joseph, we got Matthias. They're equally qualified. They've been there the whole time. I don't think God would mind if we did 13. What's the difference? Why'd they pick another disciple? Another apostle? Because God told them to. Because God wanted them to. Right? This isn't rocket science. They're reflecting in the scripture. Go, Here's what God says. I better do it. And that's what they're doing. Now, you'll notice as you read the rest of Acts, there are other apostles who die who they don't replace, right? Which is why we don't believe apostles are still around today. But they replaced Judas because Judas was apostate. Judas wasn't faithful. And they they wanted 12 people because Jesus had said that these apostles would be a representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you can get into all that stuff. But the point is they obeyed because God told them to. Why would we serve other people so sacrificially when it costs us so much? Because God tells us to. <laughs> Why would we give money away so generously that we could very easily use on other stuff, even good stuff? Why would we do that? Because God tells us to. Why would we discipline our kids? Gosh, that's hard, and it's just easier not to do it, and I just I feel bad. Why would I do that? Because God tells me to. Why pray? It seems so inefficient. does it really do anything. Like, because he tells me to. All right, this is the blocking and tackling. This is the fundamentals of the Christian life is you gather together and you pray and you reflect on scripture and obey what it says. And that's what this passage is calling us to. Jesus had said, listen, if you'll be faithful in little things, I'll give you the opportunity to be faithful in big things. Be faithful in gathering together. Be faithful in prayer. Be faithful in reflecting on obeying scripture. And maybe you'll get to see other stuff. The road to extraordinary experiences of God is paved with ordinary obedience to God. And so the the call, the application of this message is very straightforward. It is to commit to the ordinary shaping influence of the local church. That's what I'm calling us to do in light of this passage. Right, they, they were in a way functioning as the church. The Spirit just hadn't come yet. But man, I'd love to go to an Acts 1 church. Doesn't that sound like a sweet place? Commit to regularly being part of the shaping ordinary influence of the local church. I read a great book this last year. Uh, by James Smith, James K.A. Smith, he's a professor, and uh, it was actually, he's written a lot of stuff that's really hard to read, this was fairly accessible, it's a book called You Are What You Love, and his point is, you, it's not just that you are what you know, that's what we usually think, we think we're just brains on a stick, and if we just know the right information and get the right content, then our lives will change, but he says, no, you're not what you know, you're what you love. Because if the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor, then what matters is what you love, what you're drawn to, what your affections are, what stirs you. That's who you really are. And you are what you love. And so if we're not just brains on a stick that just need better content, right? That's kind of what we talked about last week. Last week, if you were here, I said our problem is not that we lack information. We got more information we could ever use. Our problem is we lack power. And so what we need is the spirit, that was last week's point, but what we also need are these ordinary things that shape us in extraordinary ways. Did you know that there's something that's in every one of our lives, all of us have experienced it, and it shapes us into being consumers, and we didn't even know it, right? If we were to kind of, uh, you know, in a class or something, go, hey, what are some of the biggest idols in American culture? One thing that would eventually come up would be consumerism, right? When you say, like, as I look around, man, there's a problem with consumerism in our culture. Like, we think stuff's going to make us happy, and it won't. We think if I just get the newest and the latest and the greatest, that's going to be the answer. And, and it's even kind of in the church, because even Christians go, well, I'm just kind of a consumer of experiences. And, and it's all about what I can get, what I can consume, right? We'd say that's a huge problem. Do you know that there's something that is shaping you as a consumer have a consumer identity, you didn't even know it was shaping you. It's called the mall. Now, James Smith talks about this in his book, and and what he says is, hey, when you go into the mall, there's not a statement of faith at the mall that says, welcome to the mall. Uh, We're glad that you're here today. At the end of today's journey, you will be more of a consumer. And we want you to buy into a worldview that says that the stuff in your life is what will make you happy And that's what we're trying to do here today. You you never read that, right? And yet everything about the experience of the mall shapes you in that way. It's the habits, it's the practices, it's the layout, it's the architecture, it's all of it shapes you in this way. And what Smith points out is that the mall, malls are designed as cathedrals. Malls are religious experiences. Why? Because they shape us. And they shape what we love. Think about it. Think about the entrance of a mall. Big arches, columns, right? This this looks like the entrance to a cathedral. Welcome, come to worship. Right? And you come, and they hand you a program, only the program is a map that orients you and says, here's what you can expect, and here's where the food court is, and here's all these things. And, and, and so you enter into this worship experience, shaping you to be a consumer, and you go inside, and inside there's these big vertical spaces that communicate transcendence, right? Your eyes lift up to the heavens, and it's glorious, right? And, and, and you, you, lose, you can't see the cars and all the... all that stuff you're just you're brought in and it's clean and if there's a bath and body works it smells good it's the incense right and you smell it and it's this transcendent kind of experience and there's no time here right you've escaped into this otherworldly thing you can't find a clock anywhere there's no time you're outside time and everything just stands still except every now and then there are these holidays right and and this cathedral lets you know about the holidays they decorate for each holiday and you know that the latest holiday is just a few months away and here it comes and like an old cathedral has a layout of these kind of various hallways with little chapels so does the mall It's kind of a labyrinth sort of a feel. But inside, there's these little chapels where you can kind of experience worship related to all the different saints. And you go into the chapel, and you're expectant. You're eager. You're thinking, I know it's here. The experience, the thing that I've been looking for, I know it's here. And you're looking through the racks, and you're looking, and you're looking, and there's this sense of expectation and this sense of, oh, this is gonna be great. And you look, and you look, and you look, and you find it. And so you take it to the altar (laughs) where the priest helps you make a transaction (laughs) and then sends you off with the benediction, have a great day, come again soon, right? That's a religious experience. It shapes you. It forms you. Now one of the things that I think would be a great exercise in your small groups, your RCs this week, is is to reflect on what are some of the environments, what are some of the places that shape us in ways that we don't want to be shaped? Well, do you know what else shapes us? The local church. See, the local church is designed to shape us, not just in a brains on a stick way, like, hey, we just got to get the right content, otherwise it'd just be a sermon, or otherwise, be like, hey, welcome, we're going to do a sermon, that's it, bye. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, I would love to go to that church. Well, you don't, and you're not going to. Because we believe that you're not just a brain on a stick, you're shaped by the whole experience, and, and, and I'm going to just kind of lift the curtain on some of the experience that you didn't even know was shaping you, but it's intentional, and it's thoughtful, and it's purposeful. Because we, we have a kind of, even though we're very relaxed, some of you would go, this place is not ritual at all, and yet these rituals these practices these things we do they shape us so every week the beginning of the service there's a time of gathering it's a call to worship matthew or joshua or Nikki or whoever's leading will invite us to gather together they'll remind us of the faithfulness of god they'll remind us that god invites us to to be together matthew talked today about how there's something special that happens when we gather together and it's an invitation from the lord to be his people and that shapes us And then we listen. And in listening, yes, we get content. Yes, we get information. that's important because in Romans 12, it says that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so our minds are significant. But as we listen, we humble ourselves. We hear God's word. We consider God's story and our story and think, okay, how how can I live more as though I believe that God's story is the true story of the world? And it, it shapes us. Then after we listen, we commune. There's communing. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We come to the table. We have these ordinary elements. We eat and we drink with the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the shepherd of our souls, our heavenly father we eat with him and there's no box seats and there's no vip seating right and we are all one at the foot of the cross of jesus christ and it shapes us then we sing we sing and we celebrate why because you sing when you are celebrating Right, and, and for sure, we preach to ourselves as we sing, and we preach to one another about the faithfulness of God as we sing, but as much as anything, we're inhabiting a practice that shapes us to celebrate. I was watching yesterday a soccer match. I don't do that a lot, but I'm starting to coach soccer, and I'm going, okay, I've got to watch this, right? and, and I'm watching this English Premier League yesterday morning, and two minutes into the game, nothing has happened. I mean, they've passed it a lot. Nothing's happened. And you know what the crowd's doing? Singing. We're in a game! It's soccer! We're British! <laughs> Nothing's happened. And yet, the, the, the celebration, we sing, right? And so you may go, I don't know if anything's happened in my life. I don't know. Sing! And maybe in the singing, it reminds you God is worth getting excited about. God is worth being full of joy over. God is worth expressing my heart to. And He has saved me. And He has forgiven me. And He has risen me up with Him, right? It's a time to celebrate. And that celebrating shapes us. Then we close the service with a benediction, with ascending. Right, Me or someone else gets up here and says, listen, God loves you. Here's a charge as you go out this week. Be faithful to him and we send you. Right? And all of that shapes you. You didn't know that was happening, just like you didn't know the mole was shaping you, but it does. And so we need to commit as a people to the ordinary shaping experience of the church. Because you aren't going to be shaped in the good news of the gospel anywhere else. I like how Smith says it. He says this. He says, discipleship is a kind of immigration from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. This is such a great picture. In Christ, we are given a heavenly passport. In his body, that's the church, we learn how to live like locals of his kingdom. Such an immigration to a new kingdom isn't just a matter of being teleported to a different realm. We need to be acclimated to a new way of life, learn a new language, acquire new habits, and unlearn the habits of that rival dominion. Christian worship is our enculturation as citizens of heaven, subjects of kingdom come. Isn't that a picture? And I wonder how many people will go, you know what, I love immigrants and I hope that we have more immigrants in our country but I wish they'd learn the language. And I wish they'd like take on some of the customs of America. Do you think Jesus is ever like, man, I love my people but I wish they'd learn the language. I wish they wouldn't just let the mall shape them but I wish they'd let me shape them and it happens in the church. Right, so if you go, yeah, I'm an immigrant on a way to a heavenly kingdom and all the time I'm just being trained in the kingdom of the world, you need the church. And that's every single one of us. You go, well, how do I do that? How do I? Well, well, one, go, I'm going to come to church every week that I'm here. All right, if you're, if you're out of town, that happens. If your kids are sick, that happens. But if you uh, just pre-decide, we go to church on Sundays, then you're committing to be a regular part of the community of faith. As Seth said earlier, it's not just about being a crowd, though, in this room, because you're also shaped in ways we could talk about through small groups, through meals together, through praying together, through getting to know one another in a, in a more personal way, right? And so you want to take a step that direction. That's that Start Here class. You should go be part of that. You should take a step. Say, I, I, I don't expect it to be extraordinary. I expect it to be really, really, really ordinary, but I want to be an Acts 1 Christian so that I might be ready for what God might do in Acts 2. That's what I long for us to be as a church. is just a group of faithful plotters. Just one foot in front of the other, step by step by step. Not impressive, not amazing. Faithful, step by step by step. I love this quote by Kevin DeYoung. I've shared it before, but it's so important that I'm sharing it again. It's from an article he wrote called The Glory of Plotting. He says this, unless, until we are content with being one of the million nameless, faceless church members and not the next globe-trotting rock star, we aren't ready to be part of a church. In the grand scheme of things, most of us are going to be more of an Ampliatus or a Phlegon than an Apostle Paul. You go, I've never heard of Ampliatus or Phlegon. Exactly. (laughs) That's the point. And maybe that's why so many Christians are getting tired of the church. We haven't learned how to be part of the crowd. We haven't learned to be ordinary. Our jobs are often mundane. Our devotional times often seem like a waste. Church services are often forgettable. That's life. We drive to the same places, go through the same routines with the kids, buy the same groceries at the store, and share a bed with the same person every night. At least you should be. Church is often the same too. Same doctrine, same basic order of worship, same preacher, same people. But in all the smallness and sameness, God works. Like the smallest seed in the gro- garden growing to unbelievable heights. Life is usually pretty ordinary, just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's a long obedience in the same the road to extraordinary experiences of God is paved with ordinary obedience to God. Let's pray. Father,